Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Writer Gish Jen's latest work of fiction titled Thank You, Mr. Nixon uses President Nixon's historic 1972 visit to China to normalize relations between the two countries as a jumping off point for a series of short stories. They get at the impact on every on the everyday lives of the changes that China has undergone in the last half century. The stories are also chronological, coming right up to the present and they're interrelated and even funny. Gish Jen, welcome to Forum. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. And just to give listeners a sense of what I mean in my intro about, about funny, interrelated, and how really the uh, visit by President Nixon is the jumping off point, the title story in your collection is a letter to Nixon written by a little Chinese girl. She happens to be in heaven at this point or remembers when she was a little girl. Nixon is in hell. Uh, you write that he's specifically in the ninth <laughs> ring of hell in pit 1A. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this girl is remembering the visit and she thinks it's kind of unfair that Nixon is in hell because of the things that she remembers fondly about his visit to China. Can you just talk about why you decided to write this story in the form of a letter to Nixon. Well, you know, um, when people ask fiction writers about their work, they often use that word decide as if we decide. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that kind of control. It just kind of comes to us and and or it comes to me. And um and I don't know where it comes from. You know, I don't know why I wake up one morning and start writing <laughs> right. a, a letter to Richard Nixon, you know, I don't know why. Um but I can say that um, you know, you know, often I'm I'm channeling some kind of feeling, right? That I that um I may be aware of in myself or in others. And um, and you know, and I, I think that actually, you know, there was a, a lot of um appreciation of you know for Richard Nixon's um visit and all that it brought to China. And I think that you know, here in America, obviously Nixon is not our, our favorite political figure. <laughs> Um, but but for many Chinese, he was he was a kind of uh, hero, and of course, as is clear in my story, um, you know, for many many of them, the real you know figure who stood out was Pat Nixon with that red coat. Yeah. You know, I you know China at that time was a sea of gray and navy blue and black. And, you know, and here comes Pat Nixon standing on the Great Wall with that beautiful red coat. And the communists had tried to beat that love of bourgeois things, you know, out of the Chinese. But let's face it, you know, they still loved red. <laughs> and, and no matter, no matter, no matter, no amount of indoctrination was going to get it out of them. And they saw that coat, they fell in love with it. And I do think that it was that love of red, of 
you know, a certain, a certain kind of frivolity mm. that um, that they associated with capitalism that, you know, was that that made people like this, this narrator's um, family jump into the capitalist sea at the first opportunity, you know. Um, they, you know, her mother started sewing, they started a little coat factory. And from their point of view, you know, Nixon's visit was a wonderful thing. And uh, you illuminate there the fact that your book, yes, while it is about that political moment, which Monday marks the 50th anniversary of uh, Nixon launching that historic week-long visit to China, um, that it's also very much about the personal impact that it had on people's lives. And you bring up the fact that this um, fictional family then gets into the coat selling business and in some of the things that they face, for example, um, they they are warned that people will not buy coats that have tags that say made in China on them. But if they can get a factory, you know, to to do some final work elsewhere that might help try to get things into the global market and all of those those kinds of details, which made me feel like this was in some ways representative of what it was like for early Chinese manufacturers trying to get that foothold in the global economy. Did you think about the narrator's experience as representative in some way when you were describing this whole coat selling business? Well, I don't know if it's representative exactly, but it, it was a, it was a um, a pathway that was suddenly open and that certainly people were looking for those pathways, you know. Um, I myself had a cousin um, you know, who, you know, in the, you know, during the 50s, you know, had suffered very, very terribly, right? And, um, but, you know, as as China began to open, you know, he had started trading shoes across the border to Russia in this very desperate attempt to make some kind of living. And the next thing you know, you know, um, things are changing and suddenly it's okay to sell things and to have factories. And, you know, now he's, he's this big magnate. And I don't think, I don't know how typical that story is, but certainly there are many, many stories like that. So um, in the story, you know, in the case of my cousin and in case of, of this, this young girl, uh, many people's fates were completely transformed um, by what happened. And so, like I said, I don't know, you know, because many people's <laughs> lives, um, were, you know, were not transformed in quite this way. I mean, yeah. many, many of them did not want to have factories in Italy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but that that said, China, of course, is is very 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 different. Um, you know, as as a result of this of the opening of China to the West. Um, I mean, I, there probably isn't anyone in China whose life has not been affected by it, but just maybe not in this quite this way. What about your life? You've described Nixon's visit as transformational. You were young, very young when it happened. So, I, I'm curious if it was personally significant to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, my family came over, my parents came over in the 40s, you know, so, you know, I grew up in a, in a in an America where, you know, China, we were never going to ever be able to go to China. I never met any of my Chinese relatives. So we grew up, we grew up here, it was if we had no family. And um, my parents didn't think, you know, from anyone was going to be able to go back. So I, tr I took Chinese in, um, in college and their reaction was Mio Yong useless. You know, why would you do that? You know? Um, and so then all of a sudden, you know, Nixon goes to China and suddenly, you know, we can go on and, you know, an overseas Chinese tour and go to China and meet all these relatives, you know? I mean, it was just, it's just so, so I went from someone with no family to someone with an unbelievable amount of family. Um, and, um, you know, with all that that meant. And I think also it meant for me that, you know, 
my parents, you know, were Chinese in many ways. I mean, they were culturally Chinese. They were, you know, they were American citizens, but culturally they were very Chinese. And um, it's something that, you know, I, I, that I did not really understand about them. And also, of course, it was also part of me. And it was a part of me that I didn't understand. And because China opened, I could go. I mean, I went and I went again and I went again and I went again. And it's clear to me today that, you know, I was looking to understand in many things about the world, of course, and many things about my parents, but also many things about myself. You do... Uh talk about in interviews how you regularly visited China during the 70s. I think at one point you were teaching coal mining engineers. Um, yes. What were you teaching them? Was yes. it English or? <laughs> I was teaching them English as a second language. So um, this is 1981. Um, I was teaching in Shandong in, uh, Jina, in Jinan, which is in Shandong province. Um, at the time, there was only, you know, there were other foreign experts there, but they were far, far away on the other side of the city. So I only met them once. Um, in my whole part of the city, I was the only one. Um, that meant that I, I got many special things, you know. Um, for instance, um, I had the first refrigerator and that entire part of the city was mm -hmm. in my apartment. Um, I still remember when they when they brought it and everyone was, you know, everyone came to see the refrigerator and they opened the door and they somebody held up this plastic thing. And I said with great authority, that is the egg rack. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were they were very impressed. You know, so we have a bona fide foreign expert here. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had the only, I had the only sit down toilet in that in that part of the city, and I had um, I had running hot water. Uh, that meant that they would make a fire under a tank of water on the roof of the of the building, and when I wanted to take a bath, <laughs> someone would go up. Yeah, they would make a fire under the uh, under the um, the tank and heat it up, and then they would open the tap and it would flow down. And into my bathtub. Um, and just this is true of Duncan in China, you know, when he, he also has a sit-down toilet. And um, that's one of the stories, as you know. Um, he has a sit-down toilet and he has a bathtub. And uh -huh. he quickly learns that when the students come to converse with him, um, all they really want to do is see the toilet and the bathtub. And so he quickly realizes that before he can have any kind of lesson, um, he has to show them the bathroom. And um, and that, of course, is drawn straight from life. Um, I also had to have my, you know, I knew my students would not we're not going to be able to concentrate on anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're sort of a yeah, answering my next question about um, how your own experiences informed this book. Uh, you, of course, alluded earlier to the fact that it had a deep effect on you personally and as a writer. But there is also this anecdote that you took notes on China for a long time, like even before you knew you wanted to be a writer. And, and I imagine the significance of those notes is part of this book. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the first story, um, The Great Wall, you know, so that that story I actually wrote many, many, just actually just during COVID. And, and I don't think I would have been able to write that story had I not had my original notes from 1979. And if you ask me today, well, why did I take those notes? The answer is I myself don't know why. I mean, I was not planning on being a writer at that time. Um, and um, and I don't know why I took such extensive notes, but I did. And um and uh, and and as you're, if you're asking me about those experiences, um, yes, um, there are personal experiences in that story. Um, my my own family was actually on an overseas Chinese um, tour, so we were not on the kind of tour that the people in my story are. Um, 
but it is true that um, you know I did see my my grandmother's ashes, um, and they mm. were in this kind of you know they were, um, as is described in the story, um, you know in a in a kind of receptacle, and you know this huge wall of receptacles, and um, and so and I remember that vividly um, because of course here in America we just we can't conceive of, of the dead you know being put in kind of a shoebox on a wall. Um, so there, there, are, there are many things. And, and, and of course, I think, um, I think, frankly, I think some of my, my mother did do all the translating for that trip. Um, interestingly, um, just as there's a translator in the Great Wall. Um, interestingly, though, the reason she had to translate on our trip was that even though everyone was overseas Chinese, so everybody's first language was Chinese. So um, except for uh, my family, where we had, you know, children along on the trip, everybody else was, you know, they were all immigrants, and they were all from China. But they, they so um, they could not understand each other's dialects. And not only that, many of them, their Mandarin wasn't that great. So in the end, all the translation had to be done to English, and and everything was in English. It was a very weird thing to be on a tour in China with Chinese people and have everything be in English. But we would go to a city, the local the local person would be translated to Mandarin. From Mandarin, my mother would translate it to English, and then everybody would nod. Ah, wow. Well, right, and of course, in the story, it's the story of of Opal, whose daughter Grace is taking her to China for the first time since she immigrated to the U.S. decades ago. And uh, she ends up acting as someone who helps the uh, Chinese tour guide who's having difficulty being understood in English as well. I I do want to ask you about a line in in that story, since you bring it up, that I was struck by. And it was this moment when when Opal says to Grace that... um, that she speaks to her own mother in heaven and that um, she told her mother how she acted as a translator. And her mother had responded to her by saying that uh, you will translate for them, presumably the Americans, you will translate for them all the rest of your life. Yeah. Can you... It's a tough, tough moment um, in the story. And, um, you know, there is a way in which, um, you know, you know, somebody like Opal, um, in one way, of course, she is fully American and she's an American citizen. And I don't want to sort of make her out to be some kind of, you know, perpetual foreigner. But there is a part of her that she recognizes the people around her will not never understand you know mm-hmm. um i think what's good about america is that people want to hear the translation you know <laughs> um you know so you know and she's hardly the only person i think to feel this um but there is the, you know there it, there's a translating going on you know it's not it's you know your culture it's not like you are a fish in water you know, you're fish in something else, and and um, and you're welcome to be in the something else. But it's it's not the waters that you know that you knew from your childhood, and um, and there are many things about it, yeah, that you will have to explain. I mean, I think that one of the things that happens in that story, as you will recall, is that you know she does a you know she stands up to translate really just to help the tour guide out. The tour guide, um, and this is, you know, if you were in China in these in the early days, you will recognize the situation. <laughs> the tour guide was assigned to this, this American tour group, even though her English isn't that great. 
And she got that job because her father was some bigwig, right? And um, she herself doesn't want the job, but she's in this position and she doesn't really speak English. And Opal, realizing that she is in a tough spot, just stands up to translate. You know, it's, it's just a very natural human gesture. Um, and that kind of thing, you know, and then and then and then the toy guard later on sees an opportunity to pay her back and, and does. It pays her back with a favor, you know, that she can extend. And you know, I've seen this kind of this kind of exchange many, many, many times. And I've also seen the way that, you know, this is the Western gaze, you know, the way that people see this, you know, this glanchy thing, this thing about relationships as a tit for tat, you know, they see it, see it as transactional. When I have to say, I mean, I think it can be transactional. I'm not saying it's never transactional, but I have seen so many instances where it, it it's not trans, it's just an act of human generosity and um, that is repaid. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a kind of a, from the Chinese point of view, it's, it's a, it's just natural. And I will say, in my opinion, it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen the way that, you know, this kind of thing is, is really can be very, very um, misunderstood by the West. Do you know what I mean? Where it yep. seems like, the, you know, they're scratching, scratching each other's backs, <laughs> you know, they're all in bed. Together. And, and that's just not, you know, in my view, that's just not what's going on. And, um, you know, people ask me, what do you want people to get from your book? You know, I, you know, I, I hope that they will come away with a, a more nuanced appreciation of these kinds of exchanges and what cultural difference really is. We're talking with writer Gish Jen. Her new story collection is Thank You, Mr. Nixon. And I'm wondering, listeners, if what you're hearing from Gish Jen is resonating with you. Maybe you have family ties to China as well or have visited or worked there. You can share your observations by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Gish Jen's previous books, of course, include The Resisters, and who's Irish. And uh, interestingly, as we talk about, um, thank you, Mr. Nixon, next week marks the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's historic visit to China. Um, did you plan, like, were you thinking about this 50th anniversary when you <laughs> you were writing this book, Christian? Well, I, you know, it occurred to me during COVID, you know, I don't think if I, if, if it weren't for COVID, I don't think I, it would have dawned on me, you know. <laughs> But um, but of course I you know I have been I have been writing these stories all the way along you know very happily for me it just so happens that my writing career has has pretty much spanned this fifty year period right wow. so I got my MFA in nineteen eighty one um, and so I've been writing stories all the way along and and it's it's not not so much that I was trying to capture what was going on but naturally the back you know it's kind of like a time lapse camera right the background is changing and um and you know new immigrants are showing up and um things are changing and I'm just kind of capturing them because I am writing these stories over this period of time and I ha- so I had been meaning to collect them and it had occurred to me to um to make it chronological because so many of the, so many of the characters recurred um, and then it suddenly dawned on me during COVID <laughs> that this the 50th anniversary was coming up and that this was a particularly good time um, to be reflecting on what's happened in China. Well, we'll have more with Gish Jen after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Next week marks the 50th anniversary of President Nixon's historic visit to China. And we're talking to Gis Jen, whose new story collection found inspiration in that event. It's called Thank You, Mr. Nixon. And you probably know Gish Jen from previous books, including The Resistors. You can join the conversation with your questions, whatever you'd like to ask Gish Jen, or if you have any observations or reactions to what uh, Gish is saying, Gish Jen is saying about um, the complicated relationship between the U.S. and China and the impact it has on ordinary lives. And Richard writes, can the author discuss her family's attitudes towards the Chinese government from the immigration to the U.S. in the 1940s through the 70s to today? Has it evolved over time? (laughs) Well, there's um, how much time do we have? (laughs) Uh, you know, obviously, you know, when my parents came in the 1940s, they were involuntary um, immigrants. So my father came as a part, part of the war effort. Um, he was um, he was an engineer. He's an hydro- hydraulics engineer in Shanghai. Um, at the time, they were talking about opening a second front against the Japanese in the Shanghai Harbor. Uh, they had one of those big exams to figure out which engineers should be working on that. He did very well on that exam. So he was sent across China. You couldn't come across the Pacific because it was too dangerous, right? So came across, you know, across China, over the hump, that's the Himalayas, into India, all the way across Europe, all the way across the Atlantic. Uh, by the time he got here, the war was over, right? So, so you know, he was here. Then he sort of decided to stay and get a doctorate. Um, but he was here um, in 1949 when suddenly, you know, the, the, the country um you know, suddenly there was a revolution and the country that he had left was no longer there. Um, like many engineers, he actually wanted to go back to China, of course, um, but actually the U.S. government had, had had a little deal with the Kuomintang, with the nationalist government, not to let the Chinese scientists go back. At the time, um, many, many, many of the top scientists were here in the United States studying or working for some reason. Um, and so they didn't want them to go back to help the communists. And literally, people were taken off the boats in Hawaii. So, you know, obviously, my parents' view of the of the of the Americans at that point was not positive, right? Um, in fact, um, my father was offered citizenship and um, under a refugee act, and he said, "I'm not a refugee." You know, this would be as if I went to China and I was, you know, I was held there against my will, mm-hmm. and I was told that I could become a, a Chinese citizen. <laughs> And I would probably have said just what he said, which is just that you can stuff it, right? And the result was that he was not a citizen for many years, and it was very complicated for us. So I guess we were what's called today, you know, undocumented um, uh, people. And, you know, we, you know, it was very, very complicated. And my parents had very, very mixed feelings about America. Um, That said, you know, as time went on, I think they began to rather like, you know, life here. Um, I think that um, they certainly experience a lot of discrimination, um, but compared to what their families were going through back on the mainland, this was nothing. You know, in other words, I think today people are very sensitive about discrimination and quite rightly so. 
but from the point of view of people during the, you know, during like the, you know, 50s, I mean, their families back home were starving. I mean, what they were going through was just surreal. Um, and they were grateful to be here. And so I think that they began, they began to feel more grateful. Um, and then, of course, there came a point where, you know, they have these children, their children are growing up American. Um, we don't know any other way of life. Um, we love it here. Of course, we don't really, we don't even think about it, as whether we love it here or not. You know, we just are here. And, um, and, you know, their lives are here. And so they begin to love it too, you know, and they begin to think of themselves as American. And, you know, by the time it's, you know, we can go back and visit, you know, it's clear to them that they have a lot of ideas that, you know, the people you know, back in their home country don't have. Mm. Um, I remember very vividly um, a time when I got sick in, in Nanjing, and this is early on, um, and I think probably early 1980s, and um, I got very, very sick, and um, I was put in a hospital, and, you know, they wanted... Um, oh, actually, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't the one who got sick. My sister's the one who got sick. But anyway, my sister got very It was an interesting slip that I, I imagined myself into the situation. Anyway, that's the fiction writer for you. Um, but my but my sister got very sick, and and I remember that they they wanted to put her in overseas Chinese hospital, and that was a moment when you know, of course, her sisters were well, you know, of course, the the overseas Chinese hospital. Um, you know, had dust balls the size of basketballs on the floor. There were watermelon rinds everywhere. I still remember the IV needles were rusty. Um, they had never seen a Band-Aid before. And, you know, and, you know, the argument was that we were not Americans. And, you know, I, and I remember my mother's sisters were just kind of, we'll just have to find a way around this. But my mother, by that point, having spent so much time in America, said, we are Americans, do you know what I mean? And we will not put up with this, you know? So that whole idea that you don't just cave, but that you argue and you stand up and you, you know, <laughs> and you give them everything you've got. Um, you know, my by that point, like I say, by that point, it was clear that my, that my mother um, was very different yeah. um, than her other. I, I'm so and, and that she was, and that was this freedom. This freedom that she had was not something that she was going to give up very easily. Yeah, I, I'm really struck by hearing you tell this story because I remember reading a piece that you wrote nearly a year ago. Now it was in the wake of the Atlanta killings of six Asian women, and you had written this piece about how your mother. You're describing her as very. Um, American or American eyes or recognizing her own Americanness uh, in those moments. Um, but you you talked about how her being first generation never expected you or your siblings, while you may feel Americanized, to ever be accepted as Americans, that she never expected Americans to stand up for you. And that um, in the wake of those killings, the expectation um, among Asian Americans that others would sympathize or stand up for other Asian Americans in that moment was a sign that that Asian person was very Americanized. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about that? Because at the same time, it, it is sort of a through line in your short story collection about how perspectives on on race change generationally. Um, so, so curious about about 
how you're how you think your mother, given how Americanized she's become, and yet does not see herself or her children as ever being accepted as Americanized, if that's if that's changed at all. As American, I'm sorry, has changed at all. Well, you know, I wouldn't say, um, you know, I would have to look at my own piece to see exactly what I wrote. First of all, let me say that, you know, my mother's passed away, so I don't want to speak for how she would feel now. I don't oh, know. Right. I'm sorry. Um, but, um, it's all right. but, um, but I will say that um, I think that there has been a generational change in um, our ideas, not so much about whether we would be accepted as American or not, but whether, um, you know, you had to fight for yourself. Do you know what I mean? In other words, whether, you know, you were in a place where authorities were going to come through, come forward and protect you, or whether you had to stick up for yourself. And I think that that's a difference, actually, that's not that it, it's not just Asian Americans who have where there's this been this change. I mean, you know, my brother in law is, you know, who grew up in, in Somerville, Massachusetts, Irish, you know, <laughs> remembers, you know, how tough it was, you know, how tough it was. And, um, and you know, he's my age. And um, when his son was having um, was having trouble with, you know, there's a lot of tension between the you know Italians and the Irish and. And, you know, and his, his, you know, when his son was, you know, was, was being bullied, you know, he, and this is the gentlest guy in the world. If you met this man, I mean, truly, you know, just saint-like, gentle, gentle man. But what he told his son was the next time, next time that kid bothers you, you punch him in the face, you know, <laughs> and, um, and either even uh, very sweet Cynthia Ozick, the author, you know, her reaction to my piece was just like, you know, I grew up, you know, I grew up Jewish on the Lower East Side and, and, you know, my brother got got bullied and my mother, and you can only imagine how gentle, I mean, these guys, these guys are like the least violent people you could possibly imagine. And, you know, and her mother told her brother to go out with a plank and go hit that kid. Mm. So, I mean, I think that that whole, this whole generation, like my age and, and older is used to the idea they've got to stick up for yourself. And it's only the younger generation that thinks that actually, um, you know, the authority sh should all protect you, you know, like you shouldn't have to, you know, you shouldn't have to stick up for yourself in the playground. The principal should come and do something about it, you know. Um, and uh, like I said, I think that's a very big change. I think that that's a one, it's a wonderful change. But for, for older people, it takes some getting used to, I think. Um, we're used to a much, a much more rough and tumble kind of America. Yeah. But like I said, I don't think it's I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Asian Americans, I mean, we've had more than our share of, you know, crapola. Right. Um, but <laughs> um, but, you know, but that's that said, it, it, it is not only confined to our group, I will say. Well, of course. And interestingly, your point in the piece is not so much that authorities would necessarily come in and protect, but it was also just this idea that people would sympathize, that they would stand up and stand with you. And that uh, I think in, in that piece, you, you wondered actually if Asian Americans were sort of a test case at this point, if they were experiencing a test case as to whether or not that would happen. And would this country own its anti-Asian racism and see it as everyone's problem or not. Ha have you come to a conclusion about that or come closer to one? You know, I don't know that I have a conclusion about it, but I, you know, um, the idealist to me very much hopes that we would become, you know, that we will someday become 
a country where, you know, everyone is protected and that we, we, you know, we watch out for the vulnerable of every stripe. And, um, you know, that's America the promise. Um, the realist in me feels that people who are expecting that or who are, who are devastated when that is not the case, um, I don't know, I don't, I, I guess I just don't really know if any society in the history of the world um, has ever been that kind. Hmm. Um, I think that, that um, but my, for what it's worth, I mean, I think that my, my parents experienced this country for all its difficulties as quite a bit kinder than China, like much, much, much kinder. And um, I remember my father once saying that to me, he once asked me, he said, are Americans really that nice? You know, they act nice. Are they really that nice? And I would say, you know, Dad, they, they really are. I mean, I know a lot of really nice, are really, really nice you know, people. And I, you know, I myself, I can't tell, I've been adopted by more families than I can count. Um, really, I mean, I mean, deeply adopted. And um, so there, um, so, so I would say to some, you no, know, Daddy, really, no, it's true. But he couldn't believe it. You know, he, he really, he, he was really, yeah, he was very doubtful. We're talking to writer Gish Jen, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Alana tweets, my first trip to China in 1987 was surreal. As a half Chinese kid with my Chinese mother, people had no idea what to think of us. People would constantly tell my mom how good her Chinese was, born in China, left in the 40s. I returned in 2018 with my quarter Chinese child, and you can imagine the reactions weren't that different. Uh, how recently have you been to China, Christian? Um, so I spoke last there about two years ago and um you know i will say that you know you know it's it's been, it, it, the chinese like everyone else you know china is changing and fast 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 right and not evenly so you know um i myself it's interesting um for whatever reason you know i don't look classically han chinese and um and i am 100% Han Chinese to the best of my knowledge, but um, but I don't look it. And so, you know, in the early days, it would be like, they would always ask me, you know, are you, know, are you Japanese? You know, it's very, <laughs> very hostile way, you know? And I would say, no, 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 my parents were there. I mean, so it's funny because they were more hung up on that than on the fact that I was, you know, I was, you know, Meiji and you know, that's American overseas, you know, Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were more hung up on the fact that I looked Japanese, right? Um, now, you know, after a while, they seem to think that that was very beautiful. <laughs> you, know, you go back, you know, same thing. You look the same or, you know, maybe you look a little older, but, you know, you look basically the same. And, and then all of a sudden it seems to be this kind of cool, exotic thing about you, you know, the same way my hair was not that black. And that was kind of a, seemed like as a problem in the early days. And then now it's kind of like, you know, your hair is a little browner and they think that's great. Like they're all dyeing their hair to make your hair, the hair make more brown. <laughs> So, so these changes, you know, and, I, and I've seen also, um, you know, I've seen big changes and similarly in, in the reception that my children got. So my children are half half. And, you know, in the early days, you know, they were very, you know, chiquai, they were very strange. And, um, you know, now they're kind of cool, you know, but I would say they're cool in some places. And then I'm sure you would go other places and, and have, you know, kind of have a, a different reaction. You know what I mean? So I'm seeing, you know, what happens in Shanghai? 
I'm sure even if you in one part of Shanghai versus another part of Shanghai, you're going to get different reactions. But I would say that in my experience, um, that it's a little less a little less hostile um, to people not being pure in you know than it, than it used to be. But I will say in the olden days, you know, certainly within my memory. Um, there's a lot of policing, you know, there's a lot of feeling that you must look pure Han Chinese and everybody else is sort of uh, fallen in some way. Yeah. Well, we have a couple of minutes left. And there was one last piece I did want to ask you about that, that really felt so rich with so many things. You've kind of alluded to some personal experiences that are in this, but it's one of the I think it's like the second to last story in your collection that's set during the Trump years. It's called No More Maybe about a Chinese couple in the U.S. whose visas have expired, so they're technically undocumented. And the husband's parents from China are visiting and they're entertaining them at that time. And it's it's a story where it begins with the the Chinese parents saying that China is even more capitalist than the U.S. and that the U.S. spies on its citizens just as much as China, and it's drawing all of these connections between the two. And I was wondering what the inspiration for that was. Well, um, you know, there's some things that I can't talk about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but I will say that, you know, that, you know, I, um, I have, I have, I definitely talked I know people, you know, I've heard people talk and, um, and um, I, that's all I'll say about it. If you Ooh. don't mind. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, I don't mean too mysterious, but you know, it's, you know, it's, you can't go dragging people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. You're trying else. to, you're trying to protect, you're trying to protect people, but ultimately it really is yeah, about yeah. a misunderstanding. I mean, not that it's not that it's so dangerous or so terrible, but you know what I mean? I, I, you know, try to have a little respect for people. Sure. Well, do you want to make, in addition to that, what happens in this story is basically a hate incident against this family based on misunderstanding. And it just felt so current and just wanted to ask you about, about the inspiration around that in our last 30 yeah, well, seconds. You know, that, that the incident is made up, you know, so that, you know, in real life that did not happen. And yet, of course, it's entirely plausible, you know, and, you know, the, and I think that, you know, as a writer, um, you know, I'm interested in the in, in kind of what makes that suddenly arise. In other words, you know, certainly the vocabulary for it was kind of was there. And yet, you know, this man who does this thing that, you know, that they really that kind of shocks them, um, that could easily not have happened. Do you know what I mean? In other words, I guess that's to say, you know, as a writer, I'm always interested in bringing the complexity to things, bringing out the complexity. And, you know, I guess that's to sort of say that, you know, his racism to me um, seems situational, if, yeah. you know, if that's, you know, and I think it's true of a lot of racism, to be honest. You know, I mean, of course, it, it, it underlies things, but then there are also circumstances that bring it out and there's circumstances that can tamp it down. Well, thank you for exploring what you do, Gis Jen, and for coming on today. And my oh, it's thanks. been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And my thanks to listeners for listening. Have a great weekend. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.